Well, this morning we have arrived at probably the most well-known chapter in the book of Daniel, maybe one of the most well-known stories in all of God's Word, and that is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. But before you turn to Daniel chapter 6, I want us to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Just by way of introduction this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, and the book of 1 Peter is very interesting to me because Peter was writing to Christians who were scattered all over Asia at the time, and they were being persecuted for their, their faith in Christ. And so he was writing to them to encourage them, to remind them that they shouldn't be surprised that they were going through trials and tribulations and being persecuted for their commitment to Christ because Christ himself was persecuted and they had been called to this purpose and, and uh, Christ had uh, set an example for them to follow. Uh, but it was more than that. He wanted to help them to see that, that they weren't just to endure their trials and tribulations and the persecution that they were experiencing. He wanted to teach them how to capitalize on that evangelistic opportunity to win people over without a word by their chaste and respectful behavior. In other words, how they responded to being mistreated and being persecuted was a huge gospel witness. And so that really is the underlying theme of, of 1 Peter is not just to in, how to endure trials, but how to maximize the trial, how to, how to use a trial to, to, to share Christ uh, by your example, uh, and particularly uh, for the persecutors, those who are persecuting you, who are mistreating you. And really the heart of this letter is in chapter 2, starting in verse 11, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to the governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as, a, as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And then notice what he says next. Servants... Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return, while suffering he uttered no threats, but kept him trusting himself to him who judges righteously. And essentially what Peter was saying here is that as Christians, we are living in a foreign land 
that is hostile toward what we believe and how we live our lives. This world is not our home. We just sang about that, that we have the hope of heaven. Heaven is our home. We are presently in enemy territory that is under the control of Satan who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He says that later on in 1 Peter 5.8. And Satan influences the evil world system and evil people to be ferocious against those who've committed their lives to follow Christ. And so it should come as no surprise when we're treated harshly or unjustly because Christ promised that his followers would suffer just like he did. And the good news is he left us an example to follow in his steps. And so until the day that Christ returns to deliver us from this evil, wicked, pagan culture in which we live, we need to continue to live a holy and righteous life and patiently endure whatever tribulations, whatever persecutions may come as a result of our commitment to him, knowing that we have a righteous judge in heaven who will sovereignly protect us and vindicate us and use us to win others to Christ before Christ returns to come and get us. That's essentially what Peter is saying here. And nowhere are these principles illustrated more precisely and and vividly than in Daniel chapter 6. And of course, I'm referring to the story of Daniel in the lion's den. James Montgomery Boyce said this about the book of Daniel, but particularly about Daniel chapter 6. He said, quote, I do not know of any message that is so timely and valuable, for, and valuable for Christians living in our secular times as the message of Daniel. In Daniel, we have a stirring example and helpful example of one who not only lived through such times and survived them, but who actually triumphed in them and excelled in public life to the glory of God. Daniel did not compromise. He was hated, he was plotted against, but he triumphed because he knew God and trusted him to do with his life whatever was best. And we've been seeing that as we've gone through the first five chapters of Daniel, and really Daniel's life and testimony uh, climax here in Daniel chapter 6 in the account that we're probably most familiar with, uh, the time when he was thrown into the lion's den by Darius. Now, I've just divided this chapter into eight parts And uh, you've got the outline hopefully in front of you, and you can just follow along as we go through uh, this chapter together. But we're going to see the promotion of Daniel, the plot against Daniel, the prayer of Daniel, the prosecution of Daniel, the preservation of Daniel, the punishment of Daniel's enemies, the praise of Daniel's God, and the prosperity of Daniel. Hopefully these will be some helpful hooks that we can hang our thoughts on as we go through this very familiar um, uh, passage of Scripture. Let's look first of all at the promotion of Daniel. Uh, Notice it just begins here in in verse 1. It seemed good to Darius. And if you weren't here last time or aren't familiar with the book of Daniel, say, well, who's Darius? Well, we need to go to the previous chapter uh, and look at the last two verses where it says that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, the Babylonian king, was slain, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So 
we saw last time the sun set on the Babylonian Empire, followed by the dawn of the Medo-Persian Empire. This was uh, the initial uh, fulfillment of the statue dream that we studied back in chapter 2 depict, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had, which was depicting the times of the Gentiles and the, the, the flow of the nations, the, the world powers uh, in, in world history. And so Babylon represented the, the gold head in that statue, which was conquered by the Medes and the Persians, represented by the silver chest and arms. And so Darius, the Mede, infiltrated Babylon, as we said, via the waterway that ran underneath the walls and entered the palace and killed, killed King Belshazzar right in the middle of a wild, drunken orgy that he was having, really in defiance of uh, the siege that had come from this enemy nation. He felt invincible. He felt the, the city of Babylon was, was impenetrable with all the walls and all the moats. And, uh, and, and that's when the, 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 the Lord wrote, right, with the finger, many, many tekel parson, you're, you've been weighed and found wanting, and uh, your kingdom will be divided amongst the, the Medes and the Persians. And so we saw that in, in Daniel chapter 5. And so here uh, we're introduced to Darius. Now, let me just make this side note here quickly. Um, I'm not sure how much to make of it, but Bible scholars don't agree on the identity of Darius. Some say he was the, the military general who uh, masterminded the overthrow of Babylon and who King Cyrus temporarily appointed uh, as the viceroy of Babylon until he was able to return from securing the borders and King Cyrus is out fighting other battles at the time. However, the, the, there's no archaeological data that has ever been found about a man, a particular man named Darius. And so that's called, caused Bible scholars to wonder, well, is this really somebody's name? The word Darius, however, has been found by archaeologists on inscriptions at least five, uh, for at least five different uh, Persian rulers. And so this has led some to believe that, that Darius is simply uh, coming from the Persian word Dara, which means king, and uh, was a title for the king. It was like King or Darius Cyrus or Darius Nebuchadnezzar or Darius, uh, it was just a, a title for the king. It was like the Pharaoh, it was like the Caesar. The Darius was the Pharaoh, the Darius was the, was the Caesar. And so this could have been the title that Cyrus took um, upon himself when he rose to power. Uh, you look at the end of this chapter in verse 28, it says, so this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Uh, an alternative translation there in the Aramaic was, this, that in the reign of Darius, even in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So these could be one and the same guys, Darius and Cyrus, or they could be two different guys. Again, at the end of the day, I don't think it really matters, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's important for us to, to think about that for a little bit. But regardless of this, whether this is a title or his actual name, the new king of the world uh, was uh, needing to... Uh, reorganize the, the government of the conquered, conquered kingdom of Babylon. And so this was one of the tasks of this new king. And so that's what we see happening in verses 1 and 2. It says, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, and they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, that the king might not suffer loss. And so like any wise leader... Uh, Darius uh, developed a leadership structure underneath him, 
and delegated and divided up the responsibility to men who he had appointed to oversee a particular area of the kingdom. Um, this is sort of like a new president, as we'll see uh, next year. We'll bring in all new appointees, right? He'll replace the cabinet with his own people. That's essentially what we're seeing happening here in the first part of Daniel chapter 6. And so he, he, his leadership hierarchy utilized two groups of people. There were satraps and there was commissioners. And, and Daniel was one of these three commissioners who reported directly to Darius to keep him up on the affairs of the kingdom and to minimize corruption, um, and so these guys were to keep watch with him, and so all these satraps would report to these three commissioners, one of which was Daniel. But notice verse 3, then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Oh, this sounds very familiar, right? Daniel is like, whatever he touched turned to gold. He was a godly man, a man of integrity, and God just chose to bless him and use him greatly in this pagan culture. And it didn't take long for anybody in leadership to recognize that this was a guy you could trust. This was a guy I want on my side. This is a guy, in fact, I want to give as much responsibility as possible because um, whatever he seems to do goes well, and so I want to experience the blessing that's on this, this man. So... Here's Daniel rising up like cream above these other two commissioners, and most likely it was, he was, again, a master administrator by this time. He was in his mid to late 80s by now, so we need to keep this in mind. Um, he had close to 40 years of experience under Nebuchadnezzar and, of course, through the reign of Belshazzar and the other kings, and so uh, Daniel, or excuse me, Darius planned to make Daniel his number one administrator over the entire kingdom. So let me just remind the lamplighters, okay? We got some lamplighters in here. Okay, our 55 plus crew. Listen, don't ever put yourself out to pasture or let somebody else put you out to pasture. Listen, you have a significant ministry as long as you have breath. Here's Daniel in his mid-80s, and he's still faithfully serving the Lord and making a huge impact in the culture. And so, unfortunately, we live in a day and age, right, where a lot of older folks will just kind of check out, and they'll just kind of go, as John Piper says, and collect seashells, you know, and uh, they get to heaven and say, look at all these seashells that I've collected, Lord, and John Piper's like, hey, don't waste your life, man, nothing wrong with going to the beach and collecting seashells, but hopefully that's not all you're doing, right? At least share Christ, hand out tracks as you're collecting seashells, do something for the kingdom, right? Uh, don't just uh, check out and say, well, I, I, I serve my time, and now it's the, the young pups. It's their turn, right? Let them do it, do the work. No, you should be leading the charge until the day the Lord takes you home. And Daniel is a great example, I think, to our senior citizens to, to finish strong, to finish strong. And so we see, first of all here, uh, the, the, the king here and, and wanting to promote Daniel. Secondly, uh, that promotion leads to a plot, a plot against Daniel. Look at verse 4. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. So just like we've already seen in previous chapters, the other officials... Um, 
Daniel's co-workers, if you will, became jealous and resented the fact that a Judean exile, a Jew, was promoted to a position over them. Uh, we see that again in verse 13. Notice they said, uh, spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. Chapter 3, just reminiscent here of uh, what happened uh, previously under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. I'm talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these, these um, satraps and commissioners were, were, were calling out and ratting out, if you will, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for not bowing down to this, to this golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had made of himself. And, but again, it's these certain Jews uh, chapter 5, verse 13, remember that Daniel was disregarded by Belshazzar. And uh, here in, in chapter 5, verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel? It's kind of like that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, who my father, the king, brought from Judah. So again, they didn't like the fact they were being showed up by a foreigner. And so they tried to dig up some dirt here on Daniel that they could use against him, which is very typical, right, when you get into politics and leadership and all the, 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 um, the intrigue that goes on in political races and oftentimes a, a carefully concealed skeleton that's been hiding in some candidate's closet, right? They'll find and they'll bring it to light just at the right time to disqualify that candidate from serving in that position. And, and I think that's essentially what's going on here. They're trying to find some skeleton um, to, to, to pin on Daniel uh, to disqualify him from this promotion, the, being the, the Darius's right-hand man, if you will. But Daniel's enemies couldn't find a single thing in his life to grab a hold of and make an issue of. They went through his life with a fine-tooth comb, if you will, and they found no dirt. They found no skeletons whatsoever. Why? Because he was a man of integrity. This is what it means to be above reproach, right? That, that there's no reproach, you know, there's nothing that anybody can grab a hold of and make an issue of, and if they do, it doesn't stick. Or there's not people who can verify that. There's not, uh, there's not the one or two witnesses, right? It talks about never accept an accusation against a, a pastor, an elder, without one or two witnesses. No one person can just say, they did this, and it's like, okay, where's your witnesses, right? Where's the people that can corroborate that that's a pattern or that actually did happen that way? Um, you, you can't do that. Why? It's because you're a man of integrity. You're a man who's above reproach. This is a very significant subject, I think, for, for all of us as we seek to live lives of integrity uh, in a pagan culture uh, who is... Uh, who is attacking us regularly, right? The Bible says if you live, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Loved? Promoted? What does it say? They'll be persecuted. It's a given. If you live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. And so it's helpful if you are a person of integrity, right? And what we mean by that is that your convictions and your conduct match, you don't say one thing and do something else. You're a man of your word. You're a person of your word. Um, the opposite of integrity would be what? Hypocrisy. That you say one thing and do another. In other words, you don't practice what you preach, right? 
Um, and so I think my favorite definition of integrity that I heard years ago was integrity is who you are when you're all by yourself. That's integrity, right? That, 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 that you're the same person wherever you are, whoever you're around, and especially when you're all by yourself. Integrity is what God knows you to be and what you know you to be. That's integrity. And so I think we should ask ourselves this question. If someone wanted to bring you down, they wanted to take you out, they wanted to destroy your reputation, ruin your life, and and they were to go through your life with a fine-tooth comb, they were to put your life under the microscope, what would they find? Would they find some dirt? Would they find some skeletons in the closet? Oh, that what was said about Daniel in the next verse could be said about all of us. Verse 5, then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. They knew they couldn't find him guilty of breaking any of the medial Persian laws, so they had to come up with some way to use the law of God against him. To call his good, what? Evil. And apparently, Daniel's religious practices must have been well known to everyone. Uh, If they were going to catch him doing anything illegal, they would have to make make his religion illegal. Because we know he's faithful to his religion, so let's somehow figure out a way to make his religion illegal, and then we got him. And so they put their heads together, and they hatched this vicious plot. Notice verse 6. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. I mean, this is, a, this is a, not just one or two guys. This is like the whole group are ganging up on Daniel, and they're conspiring together to bring him down. And they say, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together. And, and by the way, if you're a careful observer of the text, was that true? Did, 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 did all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the high officials and the governors, have consulted together? Who's missing? They, they didn't include Daniel in this. And again, Darius was, was duped by these guys because if he was really thinking, he would have said, well, wait a minute, what does Daniel think about this? Did he weigh in on this? Well, obviously they didn't want Daniel to even know about this because they were trying to trap him. So, hey, we've all consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce that injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. It's almost like they had written this thing up beforehand and said, hey, we got this great idea. Hey, you should, you should make a law that no one can pray to anyone or ask any god anything except for you for the next 30 days, for a month. It's going to be pray to Darius month. Hey, look, we got it all written up. All you got to do, here's a pen. All you got to do is sign this thing. And so what they were doing is they were flattering the king. 
be careful of flattery, by the way. Uh, I was encouraged early on in ministry that be careful about those people who are always complimenting you and always want to tell you how wonderful you are. And, and, and because oftentimes they will become your greatest critic. And so don't be enamored by the flattery that sometimes people will give you. Uh, and so he was enamored by this flattery, and they persuaded him to pass this law that no one could pray to anyone but him for 30 days. And so essentially what they were doing, they were encouraging him to declare himself God for the month. They, they may have suggested to him this was a, a great way for the people to recognize his, his power as the new leader of the known world. This was a, would be a great way to unify the kingdom under his leadership. All the focus and attention would be on him. And they suggested that the penalty for disobeying his decree would be execution by being cast into the lion's den, which was an ancient form of lethal injection or the electric chair. That's how they would, you know, if, that, if we lived back then, they'd have a, a lion's den up in Huntsville that they would use. Just throw the guy down there in the pit. Um, and so the praise and the adulation that, that, that Darius would receive likely fed his pride, and so he consented. He, he signed this decree into law, which, according to the Medo-Persian custom, was irrevocable. I mean, if, if, if you signed a law, signed something in the law, you couldn't revoke it. That, that was just a, a law. It was part of the constitution, if you will, of the Medo-Persian Empire, and we, we learned about that back in Esther, when we were studying Esther, when, when um, Haman got Ahasuerus to sign a decree to annihilate all the Jews, Right when he was finally, they were finally liberated. Um, Mordecai and Esther said, "Hey, can you like pass a new law that says, or can you can you revoke that law and say you can't go kill all the Jews?" And he said, "I'm sorry, it's it's in stone. I can't. But what I can do is I can write another law that says they can defend themselves." And and that's what they did. And so we see here this plot against Daniel. Now let's look. Thirdly, now, at the prayer of Daniel. I love this, the prayer of Daniel. By the way, isn't that a great transition? If there's a plot, you better pray, right? What should you do when you're being plotted against? Your knee-jerk reaction, no pun intended, should be to hit your knees, right? You should be on your knees before the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. There was a plot, whether he knew about it or not, which I think he did. Uh, We're going to see here. He immediately prayed about it. Great example for us. Daniel chapter 6 verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. So whether or not he knew that there was a plot against him. He did know that there was a law that King Darius signed that says you can't pray to anybody but him for the next 30 days. And even though he knew that, he went to his house, had the windows open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to God just like he had always done. Didn't miss a beat. Just kept on having his quiet time three times a day. And so it just made no difference to Daniel about that decree uh, forbidding prayer 
to anyone but Darius. He wasn't about to let that interrupt him from his, his, his daily spiritual routine. And, and as it says here, three times a day, Daniel would kneel down in front of his window that faced Jerusalem to pray. And he was following the example of David. If you remember in Psalm 55, Psalm 55 verse 16, it says this, as for me, I shall call upon God and the Lord will save me Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. So three times a day, morning, evening, and at noon. Interesting the way David described prayer there as complaining and murmuring before the Lord. And, and hey, that's okay, right? If you're going to complain about something uh, or murmur about something, don't do it amongst yourselves. Don't, don't, let's not do it amongst each other, but let's go before the Lord, right? If you've got an issue that you want to complain about, complain about it to God. And uh, he'll, he'll fix it. He'll set you straight, right? Uh, sometimes when we murmur and complain to one another, you get support. You're encouraged. You're aided and embedded in your murmuring and your complaining, and that's not helpful, right? But you bring that complaint before the, before the throne of God, and, and God will set it straight. I think that Daniel was claiming the promise of Solomon when he dedicated the temple back in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 6. You remember when the, uh, Solomon's temple was dedicated, Solomon prayed this tremendous prayer, asking God that if, if there was ever a time when the people um, did, denied him or, or, or drifted away from him uh, and they found themselves in exile in another land, uh, because God had punished them, that if they prayed, he said, Lord, if, if we pray, would you please restore us to the land? And so Solomon, I think, knew the hearts of, of, of the people. He knew his own heart, right, that was prone to wander. Uh, and so he prayed this great prayer. And notice uh, how the Lord responds here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 36. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 36 Solomon saying, when they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy, so that they take them away captive to a land far off or near, if they take thought in the land where they are taken captive, and by the way, where was the nation of Judah? They were in Babylon, in exile. Um, If they take thought of you as their captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and we've committed iniquity and have acted wickedly, if they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity where they have taken, been taken captive and pray toward their land, which you have given to their fathers and the city which you have chosen and toward the house which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven and from your dwelling place their prayer and supplications and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. And so that's, Daniel knew his Bible. He knew his Old Testament. And so he was just fulfilling this this prayer that Solomon prayed. And so there he was praying in captivity with his windows open towards the city of Jerusalem. And what was he praying? He was interceding for God's people and asking God to forgive them for their sin and to keep his promise to deliver them from exile and and return them to their homeland. We're going to see that in Daniel chapter 9. One of the greatest prayers ever recorded in Scripture. And here's Daniel praying in verse 3, Daniel chapter 9, verse 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So he was praying for God's for forgiveness for, for God's people, that he would return them to the land of, Exa, land of Jerusalem to be able to 
worship once again in the temple in Jerusalem. Surely he also prayed for wisdom and guidance that he needed to carry out his duties as a, as a government official, for strength, for protection, to stand up for God in a, in a secular society. Um, what's the point? Daniel understood the vital role that prayer played in the life of a believer. And he wasn't about to ask Darius for what he knew only God could provide. I'm not going to ask Darius. I'm not going to appeal to Darius. I'm going to appeal to God. Darius can't provide me what I need, the, the, the strength and protection, the wisdom, the guidance that only the Lord can. And so, so he made no attempt to, to hide his dependence on the, on the Lord. And that's ultimately what prayer is, isn't it? Prayer is us depending on the Lord. Prayer is our declaration of dependence. I need you, God. I cannot do this without you. I can't live this day without you. I can't go to this interview without you. I can't have this conversation with my wife or my husband or my kid without you. Um, I I can't uh, have this counseling situation. I can't do anything without you. I need you, and so I pray. In the same way that Daniel's three friends couldn't bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, Daniel couldn't pray to Darius. This was, again, an act, of, an example of an act of civil disobedience. Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when the, the apostles were told by the government in, in Rome, uh, you can't keep talking about Jesus. And they said, hey, we got to obey God rather than you. And so this is another example. When it's, is it ever okay to disobey your authority or to disobey the government. Yes, when they tell you to do something that would cause you to sin, right, to do something that, that, that you shouldn't do or to not do something that the Bible commands you to do, that you have a right to disobey. Notice verse 11. This is even more interesting, I think, about Daniel's prayer life. And these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. What do you think they just said, hey, let's go check out what Daniel's... No, they, this was very intentional, very deliberate. They knew exactly where they would find Daniel. They knew, hey, this guy prays three times a day. This is how we're going to get him. Let's just get the king to sign a petition that says nobody can pray unless he's praying to the, to the king, and we got him. Because we know this dude does it three times a day. This will be easy to catch him. And so Daniel's prayer life was so consistent, so predictable that his fellow leaders knew all they had to do was to show up outside the house in the morning. If they wanted to sleep in, they could show up by lunch. If they had a lunch appointment, they could show up at dinner in the evening time. They they had three opportunities every day to catch this guy in the act of prayer. Question are your devotional habits that regular, that predictable? Does your spouse know it's 6 a.m., I'm up and, oh, you know what, I can't interrupt my husband my wife because I know they're having their quiet time right now because that's what they do every morning, 6 o'clock, they're, they're in the Word. Or, um, you know, people, your kids know, oh, I can't, we can't bother mom right now because she's having her quiet time because you know they see you it's predictable it's consistent not that you're putting on an act it's not the bible does say go into your closet so nobody sees you you're not showing off but hopefully if you live in close quarters like that just in your family your your family kind of gets to know each other's habits 
And so are your devotional habits regular? Are they predictable? I think we'd have to admit many of us, our devotional lives are so sporadic that we would never be able to be convicted of the crime of praying to God like Daniel was. Some people would have a hard time catching us praying because we do it so infrequently or sporadically. And so all that to say, Daniel is a great model for us to pattern our prayer lives after. We, we, we can learn a lot about the priority and the, the necessity of a commitment uh, to prayer, a consistent prayer life. We're again, we're going to see this again in Daniel chapter 9. One practical application for, for all of us, you know, if you're saying, oh man, that's convicting. Yeah, I, I know I don't pray enough. That's, that's easy, right? We just, uh, you bring up prayer, everybody kind of hangs their head, oh no, I'm feeling convicted because none of us ever seem to pray enough, right? We always feel guilty about that. Well, hey, let's, let's do something, all of us, okay? Simple thing. Before you go to bed tonight, okay, you got maybe uh, 10, 11 hours before that happens, okay? Just, just get away, quiet somewhere, 10 minutes, just 10 minutes, just 10 minutes. Or when you wake up tomorrow morning, before you do anything else, hit your knees. Ten, just 10 minutes. We're talking 10 minutes. That's as long as it takes some of you to shave or put your makeup on or, or eat a bowl of cereal or whatever else you got to do. T- just 10 minutes. Just, just say, hey, let's just make a commitment. Like, you know, just if, if it's just a start, it's just a start that I'm going to make sure that I don't let a day go by, that I don't just, just get on my knees or just sit somewhere quiet and just pray for 10 minutes. I guarantee you, you start doing that, 10 minutes isn't going to be enough. But what a great just little habit to get into, just to kind of maybe jumpstart your prayer life if you feel like it needs to be jumpstarted. Well, that brings us to the prosecution of Daniel. His faithful prayer life led to a prosecution. Verse 12, then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, kissing up to him, right? Or to the injunction which you sign, but keeps making his petition three times a day. These are big tattletales is what they are. And then notice how Darius responds. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, recognize, O king, that It is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Oh, just reminding you, king, it's in stone. Nothing you can do about it. You got to follow through. Make an example out of Daniel. What's going to happen if you let him off? You'll lose your influence. You'll lose your power. So Darius knew that his pride had gotten the best of him. He'd been duped by these satraps into hastily signing this decree, and and he felt like his hands were tied now. And yet he did everything he could to figure out a way. There's got to be a way to get around this decree so I can free Daniel. He loved Daniel. So he worked up into the very final hour, if you will, to find some loophole in the Medo-Persian legal system. But at the end of the day, the law couldn't be changed, and he had no other choice but to throw Daniel to the lions. Verse 16, then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. 
the king spoke and said to Daniel, your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. I mean, come on, are you kidding me? This is a pagan king, and he's telling Daniel, hey, Daniel, I'm confident that your God, whom you constantly talk to, you constantly pray to, you constantly serve, and he's going to deliver you. I tried, I couldn't, but I'm trusting that your, your king, your ultimate king, can't. Verse 17, a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. So as Daniel's being lowered into this pit, this cavern, this cave, which is how they made the lion's dens, and you drop people in from the top and the lions will be let in from the side. And so Darius's only consolation was that that the God that Daniel faithfully served would, would spare his life. I love in verse 20, notice he says it again, when he came near to the den, to Daniel, he cried out to, with a troubled voice, the king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? Chapter 3, verse 17, the same thing was said of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. Those references are why we decided to title this Serving the King of Heaven in a World of Pawns. Because that's what these guys were doing, and they were doing it well. So Darius sealed off the top of the lines then with his signet ring, along with all the other nobles. They came and did that as well. And the point was no one should tamper with this or try to release Daniel. And if they did, they would get thrown in the lines then as well. And then Darius, verse 18, notice it says, the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting. And no entertainment was brought before him and his sleep fled from him. So he rejected his usual nightly entertainment and spent the night fasting and tossing and turning in his bed, wondering what would come of his most gifted, most trusted, most beloved official. And that brings us to the fifth point here, the preservation of Daniel. The preservation of Daniel, verse 19. Then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. In other words, he could not wait. Morning couldn't come fast enough for Darius. And as soon as the sun came up, man, he got dressed and boom, he rushed out to the lion's den to see if Daniel had survived the night. Verse 20, when he came near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? This is one of those DVRs I'm wanting to watch when I get to heaven. This next phrase, Daniel. Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. Oh man, it just gives me shivers to think about that. That must have just been so awesome, that moment. Notice what he says in verse 22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I have found innocent, have been found innocent before him and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. And so in typical fashion, here is Daniel being the devout man that he was, giving God all the glory for not only delivering him from the lions in the, in the lion's den, but also vindicating him from the false accusations of the lions in the palace. And I hope you're seeing this, that this is not just about literal lions. 
He had to deal with literal lions in the, land, in the den, but he had some lions, some ferocious lions that were attacking him in the palace, these co-workers and these fellow satraps and commissioners. He says, May God, he said, God sent, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. You say, what angel? Well, I think it may have been the very same angel who stood with Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace. And we said that that angel was probably a theophany, which was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. That Christ was in that furnace with those three friends of Daniel's, and Christ was in that lion's den with, with Daniel. Again, what a great reminder that when we find ourselves in a fiery furnace or in a lion's den, we're not alone. Amen? That Christ's presence is with us. And we can rely on Him and depend on Him and hide behind Him, if you will. I read a poem recently that said, as long as Christ is in the ship, you can smile at the storm. As long as Christ is in your ship, you can smile at the storm. I think this is also a good reminder that God has chosen to protect us at times, via angels. Psalm 91 talks about that. Verse 11, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in your hands that you do not, in their hands, that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. That's applicable. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues him. So a great reminder of God's ability to protect us. Verse 23, notice it says, And the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Listen, when Daniel got thrown into the lion's den, he didn't know what God's will was, he, he could have been delivered or he could have been devoured. It wasn't that the, the spirit of, the, of his buddies, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back in Daniel chapter 3. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar, listen, you can throw us in the, 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 the fiery furnace and, and we know God's able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to serve you and your gods and worship the golden image. So I think Daniel had that same spirit was, hey, listen, I don't know what's going to happen. I, get, I might get eaten alive in here. But if that's God's will, that's God's will. But either way, I'm not going to pray to you. I can't. So all he knew to do was just to, to trust God and to know that God would do with him what he thought best. Little did he know that his great faith would be the subject of flannel graph lessons and sermons for centuries to come. Well, notice number six, the punishment of Daniel's enemies. The punishment of Daniel's enemies, verse 24. This is when the story gets ironic. The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel. 
And they cast them, their children, their wives, into the lion's den, and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So for those liberals who say, well, you know, the lions, they just weren't hungry. Their teeth had been removed. Kind of like the abominable snowman, I guess, in Rudolph, right? Take the teeth out. They're harmless. That's what some liberal commentators say. Oh, because they, they don't believe in the supernatural, right? But here, it, this refutes that because the fact that they were instantly devoured, I mean, they didn't even hit the ground. These lions were jumping up into the air and devouring them. It shows that they were very hungry. As all lions in those days were kept so they'd be ready at a moment's notice for an execution. And so I think it's very interesting here that Darius ordered those who had maliciously accused Daniel. Literally, that, that word there, maliciously accused, means to eat in the pieces of Daniel. Tried to chew him up. That's in the Hebrew what it's saying. That they got, right, what, what goes around, comes around, they got chewed up themselves, literally, by lions. And so again, Daniel's enemies received the very punishment that they had devised for Daniel. This is the proverb that talks about um, falling into the hole that you dig for your enemies. This is Haman in the book of Esther hanging, getting hung on the, the gallows that he had built to hang Mordecai. And trust yourself to him who judges righteously. Don't defend yourself. Let God defend you. Let God vindicate you. And he's got much more creative ways of doing that than you could ever imagine. Number seven, the praise of Daniel's God, verse 25. Then Darius, the king, wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land. This is like a worldwide communication. May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So again, we see another event that ends with a pagan king giving glory to God. We saw that with Nebuchadnezzar a number of times, three times in fact, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, all three of those chapters ends with them praising God. We said that Nebuchadnezzar probably even got converted. I would say, uh, as some commentators say, that this was Darius's confession of faith, if you will. And if he was Cyrus... As we talked about earlier, we know that shortly after this, what did Cyrus do? He let the people go back to Jerusalem. He signed a degree and said, hey, I want you all to go back to your homeland. In fact, I'm going to fund the rebuilding of your temple. So again, it may have been that he became a true convert to the God of Israel. That's what it sounds like here. But here's a decree declaring the first degree was, hey, I'm God, right? That's basically what the first degree was. I'm God. Everyone needs to honor me and pray to me. Now he's decreeing that God was God and everyone should honor and pray to him. 
I mean, Darius may have been a pagan king, but he sounds like a psalmist here, doesn't he? And, and by the way, this is exactly what God intended to happen through the witness of the nation of Israel. That's why he chose them in the first place, to, to be set apart and be distinct in the pagan culture and, and of all the other nations of the world, that it would stick out like a sore thumb, if you will, the aliens and strangers. You guys are weird. You're different. You eat different than we do. You dress differently. You worship differently. Right? Everything's different. And why? So that people would come to, to do what? To acknowledge what Darius acknowledged, that, that the God of Israel is the one true God, and I want to worship him. And they had failed in that responsibility. And that's why they were in exile, and yet God was still getting glory through the nation of Israel, particularly through Daniel, who was an example to the entire nation of what God originally intended them all to be doing. So God ends up using, this is another irony in the story, he uses a pagan king a Gentile king, a Gentile nation to, to whom Israel was supposed to be witnessing to, uh, to, to his glory. Now they're witnessing of his glory to all the other nations of the world. Darius was essentially doing Israel's job. And again, God could have glorified himself by, by keeping Daniel out of the lion's den to begin with. That, that would have glorified God. But apparently delivering him out of the lion's den God received even greater glory. And, and that's, a, again, a good reminder for us that God could keep us from a lot of situations if he chose to. But he oftentimes decides to, to ordain that we go through these things so that he could be with us and he could deliver us out of them so he receives even greater glory. What, 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 how does God get greater glory? To preserve you from getting cancer? That God gets a lot of glory for keeping us healthy, doesn't he? He gets all the glory for that. Or ordaining that we get cancer and then he sees us through that, right? He can get glory either way. But the Lord will deliver us out of all that. And the point is, not every faithful servant of God who trusts him is miraculously delivered from, from lion's dens and from trials and, and even from death. All you need to do is go to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, and you've got that hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and you've got name after name after episode after story and incident of, of these people, by faith they did this, and by faith they did this, and you see the, the miraculous work that God did in their lives. But then you get uh, to, towards the end in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, and what more shall I say, for, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, that sounds familiar, uh, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. By the way, you don't survive that. So somebody died. They were killed. Um, they were put in, to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destined, afflicted, ill-treated men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. 
We need to remember that those who were persecuted and martyred for their faith in Christ had just as much faith as those that weren't. The heroes of the faith, we think about that God did these miraculous things through like Daniel, right? Well, guess what? The Christians living in other parts of the world right now who are being killed for their faith, they have just as much faith. During the days of the early church, there were many Christian martyrs eaten by lions, literally eaten by lions. You say, well, okay, they, didn't, they must not have as much faith as Daniel did. Because if they did, they would have been delivered from the lions. No, that was God's will that they got eaten alive by lions. And God was glorified through that. See, God calls some to win by living. This is James Montgomery Boyce. Others are called to win by dying. But in life or death, God rules and we are called to serve him. Will we do it? The world needs those who know God and who will live for his righteousness even when the entire culture turns ferociously against them. And by the way, are you kind of getting the sense that that's coming? That our society at some point is going to turn ferociously against us as Christians? Well, let's look quickly at the end here, the prosperity of Daniel, verse 28. Verse 28, back in Daniel, chapter 6, verse 28. The story concludes, so this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Again, Daniel lived to see the day when Cyrus decreed that the Jews could return to their land and rebuild their temple. And I would submit to you that It was the faithful prayers and godly influence of Daniel that God used to soften the heart of this pagan king towards his people and fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah. It was Daniel's witness. It was Daniel's prayers. And I think this incident of Daniel's deliverance out of the lion's den must have been a huge encouragement to the Jews who were, again, living in a lion's den of their own. I mean, Babylon. The Medo-Persian, that was a lion's den, if you will. They were living among lions. And if God could deliver Daniel from a literal lion den, then, then, then that gave them hope that he could also deliver them and bring them back to their homeland in Palestine. And listen, he can deliver you from whatever lion's den you're in right now and one day bring you to your homeland in heaven. I'm sure some of you feel like you're living among lions right now. Maybe you're suffering for taking a stand for the Lord. You're maybe in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, at school. You're being falsely accused. You're being unfairly treated. You're being cruelly persecuted. Listen, you need to hear the message of Daniel above the roar of the lions around you. Some of you are getting roared at right now. Right? People are just roaring around you. And you got to hear the message of Daniel above the roar of the lions and trust that God is up to something good. He will work everything out in a way that he will get the most glory and honor. Let me just close with one more verse. Just listen. I started with you in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return, while suffering uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And the next verse says this, and he himself, we're talking about Christ here, 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Do you see the parallel between Daniel being thrown into a lion's den and being delivered? With Jesus being nailed to a cross and being delivered, being raised from the dead? Let's make the connection here. Just like Daniel, Christ's enemies plotted to have him killed and they manipulated and flattered Pontius Pilate who knew that Jesus was innocent and tried unsuccessfully to keep him from being executed, but at the end, he he felt like his hands were tied and he had no choice but to hand Jesus over uh, for crucifixion. But guess what? It was all part of God's sovereign plan to crucify his son in the place of sinners like you and like me so that we could be freed from sin and live holy and righteous lives. And just like Daniel, Jesus was placed in a pit. He was placed in a tomb that was officially sealed, right? You remember that? To prevent anyone from tampering with the tomb. And yet three days later, God vindicated his son by raising him from the dead, proving that he was truly innocent. He had committed no crime. And the penalty that he had paid for sin through his death on the cross had been accepted as payment for all those who are willing to turn away from their sin and to place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's the gospel according to Daniel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the story, this story that we're all so familiar with. I pray that we've seen it with fresh eyes and heard it with fresh ears this morning, that we've seen and heard things that comfort our souls, convict our souls, Lord, and, and ultimately conform us more to the image of Christ. Thank you for the, even just the, the, the way that Daniel being in the lion's den was a picture, a type of, of Jesus dying for our sin and, and rising again to newness of life. And Lord, that we can know that forgiveness for our sin. And we don't have to live in fear, Lord, and that you give us the strength and the ability through Christ, Lord, to live in this pagan culture this foreign land, uh, with uh, integrity. And I pray that as we uh, seek to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, that, Lord, even as Darius ultimately worshiped and glorified you, that our family members and our friends and our coworkers, Lord, our classmates, um, will one day honor and glorify you as well through our testimony that you grant us for your glory, we pray. Amen.